Hey, it's Melissa here, the host of the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. I've had an amazing time doing this podcast, and I'm so grateful for all of you who have listened and supported me along the way. As you might know, I've been working on a new podcast with my two widow besties, Kim Murray and Jen Zwink, called the Widow Squad Podcast. And I've made the decision to focus all my energy on it. The Widow Squad Podcast is a show that provides a space where widows can come together share stories, and find comfort in knowing they're not alone. It's a show we're really passionate about and hope that you'll give it a listen. If you've enjoyed Filled with Gold, I know you'll love the Widow Squad podcast. It's the same kind of honest, heartfelt, and sometimes funny conversations that you've come to expect from me. But it's also a show that will give you a deeper understanding of what it means to be a widow. So if you're ready for a new podcast, I hope you'll check out the Widow Squad podcast. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're not ready to say goodbye to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast, you can always go back and listen to all the old episodes. Whether you're a recent widow or have been on this journey for a while, we're here to support and empower each other. So come join us. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the Widow Squad podcast. You're listening to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast the show that puts you in touch with expert resources to support you in moving forward after the death of your spouse and life partner. I'm your host, Melissa Pierce. Let's dig in. I want to welcome Kim Murray of Widow 411 to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. Kim is the creator of the popular website Widow 411, which offers information and resources on topics like grief, finances, relationships, and self-care for widows, on a quest to make widowhood suck a little less. Kim also created the online course, The Ultimate Survival Guide for Widows, with detailed instructions, worksheets, and checklists to help widows tackle the crushing list of to-dos after their spouse dies. Thank you for being on the show, Kim. It's, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Melissa. I'm so excited. I'm so happy for your new podcast. This is such an exciting venture. For you, you've had some great guests already. I'm very happy to be part of it. So thank you for inviting me on. Oh, awesome. Well, let's get started. Okay. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about you and your story? Sure. So, you know, it's kind of funny when you tell your story because it's always, well, my husband died. Obviously, we're all here because we're widows. Right. Um, so hopefully by the end of this interview, we realize that our story isn't just about our husband's death, that we are much more than just a widow and someone who's surviving a spouse's death. So I just wanted to throw that out there, but yeah, so I'm here because my husband died. So in 2013, um, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma, which is a terminal brain cancer that no one survives. Um, they've come a long way in treating it in the last seven years. I know they've made some advances, but there are, there are no survivors. So it is a terminal brain cancer. When we went to the doctor, we thought um, he maybe had some flu symptoms or was just overworked, tired, you know, working too hard. But we walked into the hospital with what we thought maybe was the flu, and we walked out, and he had a death sentence. So the doctor did a CAT scan and said, you have glioblastoma. You have 12 to 15 months to live. Please treat HD going forward as a gift. So... That was quite a shock, obviously, to us. We had no idea. And um, I don't really know how to tell, you know, people what to do when you find out someone has a death sentence. You are basically living every day at that point wondering, is today the day they're going to die? So he lived 12 months. 
uh, that's about the average 12 to 15 months. We had a lot going on in that last year of, of his life. Uh, he was a self-employed business owner. So I took over running his business because he couldn't. So I was learning his new business and shuffling the kids around to their activities and then taking him to the doctor and all of his appointments. And, you know, that's, you know, well, you maybe didn't have the same experience, but people who have to deal with all the doctor's appointments know that it's a lot. So anyway, that last year was quite um, overwhelming. So a year, almost a year to the day of his diagnosis, he died. And um, then my kids and I tried to fill this gaping hole in our lives. And it's been a struggle. And, um, you know, we've had some some heavy issues over the years. Right. And, and what's your husband's name? Mark. Mark. And so he died in 2014? He died in 2014. Okay. Yes. So he was diagnosed on Valentine's Day. 2013 and he died on Super Bowl Sunday. Oh wow. It's funny the things that you remember. <laughs> it, like, isn't it? It's like, yeah. oh my gosh. I mean, Valentine's Day, I know, but Super Bowl Sunday isn't always on February yeah. 2nd, but it was that year. So I was like, wow, okay. These are some I remember these specific dates. February was a heavy month for us. Um so how old were your kids at the time? So they were eight and ten. I was 44 years old. They were eight and ten, very young, obviously, uh, still in grade school. And we did not tell them in the beginning that their dad's cancer was terminal. So imagine you have an eight and 10 year old. And I know as adults, we were having a hard time wrapping our head around a terminal diagnosis. And we just didn't really know how to tell our kids that their dad was going to die. And we knew we had to do it eventually. It was just in the beginning. We didn't think we wanted to put that burden of knowledge on them. It was a lot. So they knew he had a tumor. They knew he went to all of his doctor's appointments. They knew all of those things, but he kept getting progressively worse. And especially my older son would say, well, mom, the doctors aren't, my 10-year-old, the doctors aren't helping him. Why don't you take him to a different doctor? So we would try to, to be as open and honest as we could, except for saying he's going to die. So uh, let's see, February, he was diagnosed. So I think it was in December of that year, his Progression was worse and the chemo wasn't working and the radiation wasn't working. And he had the worst mutation of the worst tumor. So he was not a viable candidate for a lot of the clinical trials. So in December of that year, his demeanor had changed too quite a bit. So I felt like it was time to tell the kids. I knew that we, we were running short on our 12 to 15 month window. So he and I, I went to see a grief counselor. I wanted to find out how to tell children that their parents going to die. I didn't know what to say. So I went to see a grief counselor and she was very clear. She just said, you know, use the real words, say the words, death, dying. Don't say he's sick because then if the kids get sick, they may, they may think they're going to die too at some point. So use death, dying, real words. Kids are smarter than we give them credit for. So we practiced, uh, you know, we did role playing. She told me things to say or whatever. I practiced at home. But when the time came to actually tell them, I, I couldn't say the words. They didn't come out of my mouth. So Mark actually said it to the kids. We sat them down one day and just told them that there was no cure for their dad's tumor and um, he wasn't going to get any better. And so my older son said, what does that mean? So I couldn't, what I should have said was at the time, that means he's going to die. I couldn't say it. So my husband did. So it was almost like after this ridiculously long pause. Mark just said, it means I'm going to die. 
And then I don't think I'll ever get that sound out of my head of my kids screaming and the panic that ensued after that moment. So it was, it was very heavy. So we told them from that point on in December, he kept getting worse, but at least the kids knew at that point that their dad's demeanor or the change in his behavior wasn't because of them. It was because of the tumor. So I think, you know, prior to that, the kids thought that he was just being mean to be mean or, you know, coming down on them, but it was the tumor talking that, you know, not their dad. So in January of that next year, he fell down the stairs and he suffered an acute subdural hematoma. Mm. So we rushed into the hospital. They performed a craniotomy on him to relieve the pressure in his brain. And he was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. But at that point, that was the beginning of the end. So after he fell down the stairs, there was no recuperation for him at that point. I think he was partially paralyzed on his left side and the doctors couldn't really, I think he was partially brain damaged at that point, but the doctors couldn't really do a brain scan because of his condition. And so he he didn't come home after that point. Well, he came home from with hospice. So we were in the hospital. He couldn't eat on his own. He couldn't, he, everything was tubes. He couldn't speak. He couldn't swallow. He couldn't do anything. We thought he was communicating because he could sometimes nod his head but it wasn't as if I, I wasn't convinced that it was, you know, he understood everything that we were saying, mm-hmm. but I was in the hospital with him one day. I would go in every day. So for two weeks, I was just in there. I kind of think now that I think back on it, I mean, I knew what was coming. Obviously we knew what the inevitable decision was going to be. I just prolonged it as, as long as I could. I thought, you know, maybe he would get out of the hospital. I knew he couldn't go to re to rehab. I just thought maybe he'd get out of the hospital. We'd go home for a while and then see what happens. But he was reliant on tube feeding and, you know, things that were prolonging his life. Mm-hmm. So we had done advanced directives long before Mark was diagnosed. When the kids were younger, we had a trust and we made um, all the, the will and all the advanced directives and did all that paperwork. So I knew what his wishes were. I knew he didn't want to be kept alive by artificial means. I knew that. Mm-hmm. But I was keeping him alive by artificial means in the hospital because I did not want to make that decision. To, to not, to say, take him off. So for two weeks, I would just go visit him in the hospital. And one afternoon when we were in the hospital, he was very agitated in the bed. He was like pulling on his, you know, his um, IV, and, stuff. IV mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. And I said to him, I'm doing the best that I can. And he looked at me and with the side of his body, his left side was paralyzed. So his right side was paralyzed. So with his left hand, it's hard to explain, but if you can imagine him like banging the bed with his hand and then pointing at me and he wasn't speaking at this point, right? He couldn't talk, but he was pointing his finger at me as if to say enough. I said, I'm doing the best I can. And he's pointing his finger at me and you know, going back and forth with his finger as if, no, you're not, this is enough. So at that moment, I was like, oh, oh, geez, I have to do something now. I mean, it was like I was prolonging. I knew this. I knew I was prolonging. And the doctors won't tell you what to do. The nurses won't. Nobody will say. Right. They won't be like, this is the time. No, they won't do it. And I asked a lot of questions and nobody was willing to really, you know, say. So I went home that night. I pulled out the advanced directive. I read it over and over and over and over and over I mean, I must have sat there at my desk for a couple of hours just reading it. I signed it. I was his patient advocate. My job 
was to be his voice when he did not have one. So that night was when I decided we have to, we have to bring him home with hospice. So I went into the hospital the next day and told the nurses and the doctors and everybody that it was time to bring him home. And the one nurse in the, she says, I'm just so glad you finally made that decision. I'm like, why didn't you help me make it? I know. Why didn't you tell me? It's like you needed an advocate too. I need an advocate. Yeah. Oh. And that's a good point because even though you know the right thing to do, it doesn't make it any easier to do it. Right. He signed it. I signed it. I knew what his wishes were, but I had to make the decision to pull the tubes out. So one thing the nurse did tell me, which I appreciated that time, because people were concerned that if we pulled out his feeding tubes, we would be starving him to death. I mean, that's a concern, right? It's uncomfortable. I mean, that can't, that's suffering. Yeah. yeah. It's suffering. Like, why would I take his feeding tube out? So the nurse was very kind. And she said, Kim, you know, you can remove the feeding tube. She says, you're not feeding Mark. You're feeding the tumor mm. at this point. She said, so the body is, it was shutting down. His body right. was shutting down. It was dying and it was doing what it does when a body dies. So she said, don't think of it that way. Think of it that you're feeding the tumor, not him. So I said, okay. So that was what I used when people would say, well, are you, because, you know, people don't mean it. They're not asking questions to be, you know, to be mean or to be challenging. They're just curious. But when you're the one fending off all those questions and trying to make sense of everything that's happening, it's, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I was happy that she told me that, but nobody really wanted to say, take oh, him home with hospice. I know. Oh. But I did. So we, and it was very swift. It was very fast. We got him out of there and back home probably within a day. Set up his, his um, hospital bed in the basement. And I've written stories about this too. So I've got stories about this on my website. And so if anybody's ever read it on my website, I'm repeating you know, what I've already written. But when he got home, he smiled with the side of his face that wasn't paralyzed. So he had half of a smile on his face and he knew he was home. He knew it. He knew he was home. But after he got in the hospital bed and I started administering medications and the rest of that stuff, he never woke up again. So at least I knew that he knew he was home. And then it, about four days after he got home, he died. So that was just a matter of he wasn't eating. He wasn't drinking. Uh, we administer medication, but like I said, his body was shutting down. So about four days after we got home, he, he died, but we were with his parents were here and the kids were here and I was here. So he was with his family in his favorite place. And he really died very peacefully. The text mm. that I sent out the next morning was Mark died peacefully in his home today. Mm. It was very peaceful. Wow. So I was happy that I finally made that decision to bring him home. And I'm thinking of you during this time as caregiver, only parent. I'm right. imagining he's not doing a ton of parenting no. this time. No. Um, or during that 12 months. No. And um, I'm going to ask, uh, yeah, so you as a caregiver at this time and parenting and running a business. Yes, I'm running the business. And going yes. to all the doctor's appointments. How are you moving through this? How are you? Are you taking care of yourself at that point? Or? No, not at that okay. point. It's, I mean, you you know how you run on adrenaline, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you when you're in that kind of a fight or flight um, mode, I don't know. People ask me even today, how'd you do it? I don't know. I think if you ask most widows in that position, they're like, I don't know how I did it. You just keep going and going and going. 
And I took a lot of notes. And the interesting thing is um, I didn't want to forget anything. So whether it was something my husband said or my kids said, or we did, I started this um, document in Google Docs and I called it short notes. I just wanted to keep notes or reminders of things because you never know what comes up. Sometimes my kids ask me questions and I can go back and review the notes and see what the answer is. I just kept notes. Well, that was in the, you know, I started that off in the beginning and I just kept taking more notes even after Mark died and things that happened with the kids, I just kept taking more notes. So my, my short notes, Google Doc is now about 56 pages long. Oh my God. That's a book. Just, it's a book. It's a book. It'll be a book someday, but I just yeah. keep making these notes because I didn't know what else to do. So I would just vomit on a page when things were going on and I couldn't make sense of it. I just typed out my computer and just wrote it down. So I'm not saying that helped me that much. It just got some of that stuff out of my head and mm-hmm. onto the paper, but I don't know how I really don't have an yeah. answer how, how you do it. You just do it. So after Mark died and you know, you're, you're solo parenting, you're still running mm-hmm. the business, correct? Yes. Um, so at what point are you getting, or, or are you now hopeful for the future? At what point, what was the turning point there for, as you're moving through grief and, and what point are you like, I see some glimmers of hope. Well, I think the first two years after he died, I was pretty much in a constant state of panic. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that I was going to die. And if I wasn't afraid I was going to die, I was afraid my kids were going to die. So we were shocked with a brain tumor diagnosis out of the blue. So if my husband can get a tumor, well, I can get a tumor. My kids could get a tumor. Mm -hmm. I mean, was it the drinking water? Is it the, is it the, my, my, fertilizer on my grass? Is it, you know, what, what's happening? What's going on around my house? Was it something inside? Is it radon in the basement? You know what I mean? So right. I was in a constant state of panic, but as you can, I mean, for two years. Yeah. And I remember that. I remember going into my kids' rooms at night and putting like checking to see if they were breathing yeah. or I've actually, sh- I shook them. I shook my yes. youngest awake one time. Cause I thought he had the same look on his face when I found Dave dead. And right. I say shook him and he's like, what? And I'm like, oh, go back to bed. You're fine. And then um, I'm, the next day he's telling his brother, like, yeah, I had this weird dream that mom came in and shook me. And Isn't I'm just like, funny? oh, no, that was me. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, you just someone died. You didn't expect it to happen. So in my mind, it could happen again. So I was hyper vigilant. Right. You know, for for all of us those first two years. But um, death was on my mind pretty much constantly. And I was afraid that I would run the business into the ground or that I, the customers would leave and I'd be left with, you know, starting over doing something else. I could have gone and gotten a different job. I mean, I obviously have skills. I worked before I stayed home with my kids, but doing Mark's business was more of a part-time or fewer hour situation. So I could be home when my kids needed me. I could be at the after-school activities. I could do those things in a flexible schedule. So I just continued running the business because it allowed me to be flexible, but I didn't know anything about chemicals or chemical sales. So that was always on my mind too, that customers, you know, you've heard of imposter syndrome, right? Like the customers are going to figure out, I don't know what I'm doing and they're going to jump ship and go find somebody who does, but that never happened. And going on eight years later, I'm still running the business. So everything came out, but your question about, you know, the hope for the future I was in a constant state of panic. My mental health, my physical health suffered. I was an anxiety-ridden mess. 
I was afraid I was going to die. It didn't, you know, the irony of me being overly anxious all the time that was affecting my physical health. The irony wasn't lost on me. So I thought I have to rein this in. I have to get a hold of this anxiety or I really will end up with some physical, actual physical problems. I think what I decided at that time was just to maybe try and make peace with my grief. So I ran away from it those first years. I didn't want to feel the pain. I didn't want to feel the grief. It's a really super heavy feeling that most people don't really want to deal with myself included. So I think I was running away from that by keeping busy, obviously. I mean, solo parent, running a business, kids after school activities, household management. I just did everything but feel the feelings. So you know what they say, what you resist persists. Well, that grief (laughs) wasn't going anywhere. It was almost like, hi, I'm here. See me, see me. You have to acknowledge me. And so I decided to make peace with it, to acknowledge it and to just grieve. So I think in those first two years, I really didn't allow myself to do that. So I would sit with grief, literally sit in my chair, in my living room, and just let all the feelings wash over me. And some days I sat there for hours. I would either cry or stare out the window, but I would just make myself sit and say, okay, we need to acknowledge this. We need to feel this. I don't think you can be hopeful about anything if you're avoiding your feelings. I just think you're, you know, I think my anxiety, my, my other overwhelming feelings were just a mask for the grief and the sadness that I wasn't allowing myself to feel. So that hope came after those two years, first years when I said, okay, something has to change. I can't live like this. I'm still alive. I'm actually not dead. I'm still alive. So I need to, I need to go on living. And I didn't want my kids to become terrified human being, adults, human beings. Yeah. So you're modeling for them. Like you have to, you have to feel your feelings too, as uncomfortable as this is. Which they didn't do either. (laughs) Right. right? Yeah. But they're boys and whatever. So I, so it was just, I didn't want them to see me pretending like, let me back up. I cried. They saw me cry. I hid in my closet. I, you know, was in the laundry room sobbing when the washing machine was going. I did all the, all the things. They did see me cry, but I do feel like I didn't really acknowledge a lot of what I needed to acknowledge. So I didn't want them to grow up to be scared of their feelings either. So I thought, okay, this is it. I got to face it and deal with it. Once I decided to do that. I started journaling and I was reading lots of books. Uh, you know, hey, my children, when things fall apart. Are you yeah. Book? yeah. Game changer for me. So learning that um, you really can be like you can walk into uncertainty. You can walk into discomfort and you can be OK with it was really eye opening for me. So that helped me a lot. And I just decided that I didn't want to. I just didn't want to live like that anymore. I needed to be better for me and better for my kids. So I also started the website around that time too and thought I'm just going to start sharing my things that debilitated me, things that affected me. I'm going to share those stories with other widows because we're all, a lot of us are experiencing the same thing. And sometimes people just don't want to talk about it. So the website you're talking about is Widow 411. It's Widow 411. Yeah. So tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit more about how that came about. Yeah. The interesting thing was, so he, so Mark died in 2014 
And that first year, my kids and I traveled a lot. So when I when I'm telling you I ran away from grief, we were literally running. We were literally physically like, running away. Physically yes. running away. We yeah. took, I don't know, six or eight trips in those mm. first couple of years. So did a lot of travel and and got to the point where I was so exhausted I couldn't even I couldn't even leave my house again for a while. I was like, we can't go anywhere else. We have again, I have to face this. But so in 2014, at the end of the year. I don't know if it was the end of 2014, the beginning of 2015. I bought the domain for Widow Phone One. So I bought www.widowphone1.com domain name. Didn't know what I was going to do with it. It was just a thought in my head. And obviously 411 means information, okay. right? On the, on the phone I was going to ask. I'm like, I think I know, but yeah. On the phone <laughs> exchange, like when you used to dial either information or for the tech, like for the old folks, when you actually had a rotary phone or a dial phone and you could dial the time or you could dial, right? I'm I remember that. Talking. I'm aging <laughs> myself here. But so, so 411 means information. So I thought, I'm going to buy this domain. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. But I knew at the time in the very early stages that at some point I would do something with it and I would share my story. I would share my experience with others. I just didn't know when that was going to happen. So I didn't really start writing in the writing blog post in the website until um, probably late 2017, early 2018. So a couple of years mm-hmm. after I bought the domain, but I had to learn. So here's another part of it. I had to learn all the WordPress and all the website and all the technical stuff going on behind that scene. So it took me a while to get up to speed on, on creating a website and using WordPress and, and writing the blog posts and formatting them. That almost took a year mm-hmm. of just learning that before I could actually publish the posts and have some semblance of a website. Right. That took quite a bit of time too. So that's how that all started. And then I just learned as I went. So I just started writing blog posts and then learn more about the formatting and how to do different things. And it just progressed from there. So in the beginning, I thought I'm, I'm basically writing to a vacuum here. I had no idea if anybody was, could find me or was reading and little by little, you'd get somebody to sign up for your email list. And I might've had 20 people following email. And then uh, I would do some Pinterest pins or you know, publish on Instagram or do all these other mm-hmm. social media things. And just started growing from there. So once I found out that I wasn't actually writing in a vacuum, people were actually out there. Widows were finding me and reading and responding. And I thought this is really amazing because by sharing my story with them, I'm helping them, but they're helping me too. Right. (laughs) They're helping me because I'm, I'm able to just get, you know, off of my chest what I need to release and someone's out there to accept it. So where they think that I'm, oh, this is, you know, I wouldn't, couldn't have gotten through this without reading your posts. Well, I couldn't have gotten through it without writing them. Right. So it was kind of cathartic for you to just get it out on, Very on, cathartic. on paper or on your, on your blog. Yes. And then this is so interesting. So I'm finding that all the widows that I have interviewed so far have created an experience that they didn't have and they wanted to have. They couldn't find they couldn't find the blog. They couldn't find the book. They couldn't right. find the guide that they needed. So they created it kind of for themselves, but then it's helping other 
other widows, which are just exactly. Gosh, I've got goosebumps all over me. But well, because you did the same thing. I mean, your, yeah. your subscription box is the exact same thing. You didn't yeah. have that self care option, but you couldn't mm-hmm. find one. Yeah. So you made it. So it's it's. I think the best thing I ever did was just to try to be of service to someone else. Mm-hmm. So my experience isn't just all about me. It's about the collective experience of widows who lose a spouse. So being in service or helping other people, man, I don't think it gets much better than that. No. I don't think you can, you can heal much better than when you're guiding someone else through that ridiculously overwhelming right. <laughs> anxiety ridden point in time where they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's there. I didn't think it was there either. I found it. You're going to find it too. Yeah. So you're about seven years out right now. Right. And you've gained some experience and wisdom and it's you're guiding and helping somebody who is just starting to move through this or maybe a few years out and really stuck stuck so let's talk about this is so amazing the ultimate survival guide for widows talk about this creation and this offering well you know i told you before i had this 56 page google notes document, short notes, when I was doing all of the, when I was taking care of all the paperwork or the to do's after your spouse dies, which is a lot, we know this. Mm -hmm. When I was doing all of this, I thought, okay, I need to, I need to take notes and I need to put these in folders because I had got, I got the um, domain, you know, I bought the widow phone one domain, didn't know what I was going to do with it yet. And I still didn't know at this point, but I thought I got to take notes. I have to make sure I have these in folders and separate them. Because I think, I think at some point I might be able to show other widows how to do this easier. I might be able to help them get through this easier. So I didn't know at the time what I was doing. I had a jumble, I had jumbled folders of jumbled notes and things written on the front of the manila folders. Uh, It was, it was a jumbled mess. So little by little, I started to create uh, a guide, a document, and I would just do one section at a time and start adding some information into it. And bottom line, the iteration of this thing is probably, I'm on probably 30 different iterations of it at this point. I just kept changing things and trying to make it more simple. My goal with the ultimate survival guide for widows is to make it simple because Mm -hmm. doing all the tasks and closing accounts and contacting credit bureaus and dealing with credit cards or whatever you have to do, none of that is simple. So I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. So it took several iterations to get to where it is right now. So, and I'm, I'm talking like probably three years of just formatting this in some kind of a cohesive guide. Last year when COVID hit, I kept, I'm a perfectionist too. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to lie. I, I take extra long to do things <laughs> because I have to get it right, which is never right in my mind because my expectations are so high, but that kind of tripped me up for a while because I'm, I keep changing things and changing things and changing things. But then COVID hit last year and I thought, okay, we're sitting home, right? We're all home. And I thought, well, maybe this is a good time to finally get this into a final format. So that's really what I did from April to October was I just went full bore into completing it, just get this thing done. And I finally did. And then I published it. So it was originally published as a ebook. 
but I found that there's so much information in it. And I do offer lots of checklists and templates and worksheets. And I created fillable forms for those templates and worksheets. So someone going through the form can fill everything out online if they want to. So it was okay as an ebook, but I think it's more, it's easier to navigate as an online course. So I was able to take all the chapters and make them into sections of a course. And then the chapter subtitles are now section modules, but all the downloads, all the checklists and worksheets that I include are now right in those sections. So you just download it right from the course and you can complete it online. You could print it and fill it out. But I have budgets. I have templates to notify the credit bureaus or, or credit card companies. I have checklists after each section to make sure you've done you know, all the things you need to do. So it's, it's comprehensive. I decided to take it from the ebook and put it into a course. I just think that was an easier way to, to do it. Plus I was able to add video to each section. So I'm able to talk you a little bit through what each section entails and how to go about it. All right. And how long, um, how long is the course? Like if somebody did start to finish? Well, that's a good question. I don't know how long it would take somebody start to finish. It depends on how fast you can get through it. I mean, I don't recommend you just, I mean, obviously you would need time in between these sections to gather your thoughts. I, I give checklists on like, for example, important documents to gather. So, you know, you need a lot of documents. You need mm-hmm. the death certificate, birth certificate, social security card. You might need divorce papers from a previous marriage. You might need adoption papers for your kids. You might need all these things. So for example, I have a important document checklist. So it could take you, I don't know, it could take you a couple of weeks. It could take you a month to gather all that information. Yeah. I don't know. So there's nine sections. I don't know, 200. If you printed it, it would probably be over 250 pages. Okay. Gosh, that's a lot of information, but it's it's information that you need because when you're navigating this, hopefully you're only doing this once in your lifetime, you know, but what do you do? How do you know? Navigating social security was a big issue. Social security Um, is a huge issue. And one thing I found, I bought a book on social security because I wanted to know I'm far from social security age. Mm -hmm. And I was even when I read the book, but there's a lot of complicated scenarios for widows, right? Like you, you, if you marry before you're, you turn 60, you give up your deceased spouse's, you know, claim to his benefits, all these things. So I read all this social security information. And I found out that a lot of times the social security administration gives you the wrong information. So depending on who you're talking to there, you could be getting misinformation. So I spent a long time getting really knowledgeable about social security. And what I found out was one of the things in the, in the course is it's called social security numbers. You need to know, and it's not just your deceased spouse's numbers. It's your numbers too. If you work, if you have a potential retirement option with social security. So you need to know these numbers because if you were to claim your husband's, if you were to claim a benefit as a, as a widow survivor benefit, that's fine. You can do that as early as age 60. But if you have your own benefit on your own retirement record, that's possibly higher then you don't want to, then you don't want to do that. Right. right. You want to claim your own benefit, but there's a lot of tricky numbers. And because you can claim a widow benefit at 60, but not your retirement benefit on your own until 62 at the earliest, there's a lot of caveats. So in the social security section, I have this worksheet and what I recommend is you take it to your appointment or call the social security administration back and fill in these numbers. So you know exactly how much you'd be getting if you claimed a widow survivor benefit or your own at age 60, 62, 67, which is the full retirement age for most people and age 70, which is 
the last age you can you can claim at age 70. You can get the maximum amount of social security at that point. So you need all these numbers. You need to know what the right strategy would be. So I put that kind of information in wow. there in the social security section. Okay. And I talked to a widow who was, let's see, how did this happen? She was going to take the child and care benefit. So if you're a parent and you have young kids and you're not working, you can take the child and care benefit. Or if you're working, you can't make more than $18,000 right. a year. Yeah, right? I ran into that. Mm-hmm. Right. So she, she had taken the child and care benefit. And we talked and she was working part-time and she had another option for employment. And we went over her numbers and I said, I don't think you should take the child and care benefit. I think you should work because you're obviously making more money, substantially more than she could make at the $18,000 cap. But when you're claiming the widow child and care benefit, you're paying tax on that because that's under your social security number. That's considered income for you. You're not paying tax on the benefit for the child survivor benefits that come in your name as the representative payee. So why do you want to pay tax on this and limit your, limit your income potential? I'm not a big fan of limiting my income potential. Mm-hmm. So I said the social security, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I don't need the child and care, or I don't need the, um, yeah, the child and care benefit. I'm going to work on my own and do my own. So we went through all those numbers and she's like, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't realize this and whatever. So so we, I said, if you take this benefit out, this is how much your kids would get. I think she has two or three kids. So you're aware of the family maximum benefit and all that calculation. We went through all that. So then she calls the security number or so the social security administration back and they gave her the wrong amount. They literally told her the wrong amount that she'd be receiving if she withdrew that child and care benefit. So she called me back in a panic and I said, they're wrong. I'm sorry to tell you, but they are wrong. Call them back and tell them, this is your husband's primary insurance amount. This is 75% of that amount for each child. If you haven't reached your family maximum benefit, this is what you're going to be getting. Long story short, I know this is a lot of numbers or whatever, but she called them back and they said, you're right. We, we gave you the wrong information. Wow. Wow. So you're the advocate. I mean, I'm you're the advocate. advocate. I mean, yes. this is ridiculous. And I've heard this from so many people that they get this information. I'm thinking, how is that even possible? Yeah. How is that even possible? So I did a lot of research. I, it's complicated. I'm not, I don't claim I understand everything because social security doesn't even understand everything. Yeah. So, but I do my best. So I just try to give some of that information. Like you really need to know these numbers and you need to be aware of them. So a lot of the templates and the worksheets and the checklist, if you didn't take care of your family's finances, or if you knew nothing about your own finances before your spouse died, you're actually have are behind a lot of others that were actually paying bills or knew what their, what their savings account or whatever it was. So I have a lot of budget templates in there too, to kind of get your head around what your numbers are, what your income and expenses are, what your net worth is. These are numbers you should know because that, that helps you make decisions right. on what to do going forward. So that's all in the course, all these Worksheets and templates are all in there and they're all fillable. So you could do it all online if you wanted to. You could fill it out on your computer or you could print it and fill it out by hand. But that's what I wanted to do was make this as easy as possible for someone who maybe didn't even, was starting from square one and did nothing. If someone has moved through this course Mm -hmm. and they want additional like help, can, do you do one-on-one? I do one-on-one. So on my website, you'll see, uh, you'll see a section called work with me. So I do what I call mentoring sessions. 
So like the widow I told you about with the social security question, sometimes you don't need to get into a situation, even in therapy or whatever, that you need to go for weeks or months. Mm -hmm. You might just have a question. Yeah. You might need one hour or 50 minutes to bust out a question or just get a, another viewpoint. Maybe you've thought about something, you're ready to make a decision. I'm not saying I'm going to give you advice on how to make a decision for your life. I'm just going to give you optional ideas or optional thoughts about what you're considering doing. Because obviously at the end of the day, you ultimately know what's best for you and your family. But I think that sometimes, and I know myself, and you probably realize this as a, as a solo parent and making every single decision, mm-hmm. you go crazy some days. Like I do this right. Am I making a mistake? What about this? What about that? What if I did this? Sometimes you just need another level head or another voice to say, no, no, you're good. You're good. Um, you're on the right track. Don't, don't worry. Don't second guess. I spent a lot of time second guessing myself too. Right. So I know how that feels too. So yeah, I do offer mentoring sessions where we could do more than one. We can do 10 if you want to, but if you just had a simple question or something you wanted to get some, you know, a second set of eyes on. Yeah. I, I what a great too. service you're providing. I mean, you are an expert resource in this arena and you're making yeah. widowhood suck a little less. I'm I like trying that. to make it suck a little less. <laughs> I mean, it is really not fun. So let's try to make it, you know, helpful. Again, like you said earlier. These were things I didn't have. Right. I, I am a worst case scenario thinker. So I do second guess 100% of my decisions because I think that, that I'm doing something wrong because there's nobody to bounce it off of. There's nobody to tell you you're not doing it wrong. There's nobody to say, I support you. I'm behind you. That's a really scary place to be. So yeah, yeah I want to, I want to provide that you know, option to, to widows. I, I can be that resource for you. You are. And we're almost out of time. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It goes so quick. It's crazy fast. So do you have any like final thoughts to share? Uh, My final thoughts, because I've been talking about my anxiety and um, my second guessing and all the struggles that I had is I just want widows to know, because I didn't know this. I just want them to know that it is okay to be sad. It sounds simple. Feel your feelings. Be sad. It sounds simple, but it's anything but. We just, I don't think as a society, we really know how to grieve. Nobody teaches us how to do this, right? So they expect that we move on or we get over it or, you know, you six months, one year, two years, you should be fine now, right? And we're not because a monumental loss happened. A really sad thing happened. And I don't think I allowed myself to be really sad. So I just want to say, Uh, We do ourselves a big disservice if we don't feel the feelings and the sadness part, anger, resentment, guilt. We got that corner, right? We can do all those. Just be sad. Allow yourself to be sad. It doesn't mean anything about you as a person. If you're sad, doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean anything about you. It means you're human and you're sad. So I just want to let other widows know that they're allowed to feel that and to make sure that they do. The truth bomb right there. That yeah, is, that, oh gosh. Well, I thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your expertise and your story. Thank um, you, Melissa. I just, oh, I could talk to you for hours. I, all my guests. I it's like, I want to continue talking. Like, let's do a part three, part four. Let's do a part. Let's do a part two, part three. I'm game when you are. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to have you back on because I'm thank sure you're going to you so have more, more offerings. And speaking of offerings, the ultimate survival guide for widows, there's a coupon code. 
GOLD20 for 20% off the online course or any other offerings in the Widow 411 store. And thank you, Filled with Gold podcast listeners. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast with others. See you next week. Take care of yourself in the meantime. Thanks for joining us this week on the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. This show is made possible by our company, Filled with Gold Self-Care Subscription Boxes for Widows. It's a box specifically created to support you with self-care in mind. Each box is filled with self-care products and resources to encourage you to deeply care for yourself during this time when you are rebuilding your life. You can find out more about the Filled with Gold subscription box at filledwithgold.org. And if you want a free widow self-care support guide to help you on this journey, head on over to filledwithgold.org and subscribe to our email list to have it delivered right to your inbox. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. This is Melissa Pierce, and from my heart to yours, take care of yourself.